did God create the heavens and earth? Um, or was it evolution? How, how did we really come to be? Where did we come from? Like, where did the universe come from? It brought me to a point where I had to dig deeper past the surface of God created the heavens and earth. I think sometimes I struggle believing that God's grace covers everyone and every situation and every single sin. There's just not an answer for everything. I believe in the healing God, but my situation speaks contrary to that. The pain was overwhelming. I didn't really know if he was there. Why won't he heal me? Why won't he hear me? There are just so many things in the world that unexplained you would wonder how a loving, forgiving God would even allow to happen. I don't understand how someone can just give up and give in and, again, blindly trust and uh, blindly have faith in something. One thing I really struggled with and wrestled in the Bible was the fact that the devil exists. If God is good, why did he let my cousin die? You know, why did he let my parents uh, split apart? All right, good to see everybody. We're still in our series, Dealing with Doubt. So grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at that, verses 18 through 23 today. All right, Romans 1, 18 through 23. Read these out loud with me. If you don't have a Bible, grab one underneath the center seats as we're working through the Scriptures today. And you can cheat and read the screen. Starting at verse 18. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their truth, their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to to revel in uh, who you are. We thank you that you're God. There is no other. We thank you that you rule and reign over the heavens and and beyond, beyond our capacity. Lord, you're, you're infinite. Lord, we pause to say thank you for another day, a hot day, but uh, a day that the sun is rising that reminds us of the beauty of creation. Lord, we thank you uh, that you reign and rule over the galaxies, but more importantly, you reign and rule over our hearts. And it's our hearts, Lord, that we pray mostly in this moment that you would um, make yourself known. God, give us eyes to see beyond what we see naturally. Give us ears to hear what we normally hear natural beyond that, and give us hearts to receive who you are. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we, we are celebrating our fourth anniversary today, but this isn't going to really be uh, an anniversary message per se. Uh, we are continuing in our series, Dealing with Doubts, and that series has been to, to talk about those, uh, uh, you know, those most prominent 
reasons why the culture doubts belief in uh, faith, but particularly doubts belief in the, the God of Christianity. And really, we're turning the corner on, on doubt. I'm not going to talk about doubting so much today. Really, I'm going to talk about more so uh, evidence for God. That's really our focus today. And my goal is simply this, to show that belief in a personal God, specifically the God of Christianity, is reasonable and the intellectual thing to do. So that's my, my goal at the outset. Again, we're looking at this topic philosophically and theologically. So we're gonna, I'm going to quote a lot of people who know more about this topic than I do. Uh, we have based this series off of Tim Keller's book, uh, The Reasons for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And that's a book that I would encourage all of you, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, to, to grab and read well-done treatment of this topic uh, in the Christian world. We call this apologetics. Uh, particularly, um, if you are a Christian here today, this, I mean, what we've been talking about for the last five to six weeks is these are things that um, you should not only wrestle with, we all have doubts, but more, I think, for all of us, these are things that you should not just settle in your own heart, but be able to articulate because you have plenty of people around you who not only doubt, but uh, who are investigating um, who God is, and, and they perhaps need someone to help them get over the hump of it. And so if you're unable to defend what you believe, uh, you, uh, you're missing out on opportunities that God would put before you. And so I'm going to start out today uh, by saying this, God is invisible and he's unprovable. God is invisible and he's unprovable, but that doesn't mean that there is no evidence for God. Of course, that's where the debate starts. Many would argue that if scientific inquiry and discovery can't prove there is a God, why should we even believe? Why do Christians even believe if science can't prove that there is a God? But as Nick talked about in his sermon uh, focusing on science uh, a few weeks ago, science can only take us so far. Really, to get beyond the, the scientific study of it, we need faith to believe that there's a God. One Christian scientist, Francis Collins, remarked this in his book, The Language of God. He says, we have this very solid conclusion that the world had its origin in the Big Bang. 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginable bright flash of energy from an infinitesimal, how can I say that word? infinitesimally small point. Y'all try to say that three times. A very small point. That implies that before that, there was nothing. I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it, be, and it seems to be that, that that had to have been outside of nature. And so Francis Collins has a, has a good point. He's saying everything in the universe is contingent upon something else. And Christian theology says that something else, that someone else is, is a triune God that created the, the world not because he had to, because he wanted to. He created it intentionally. He created it with wisdom, and he created it with purpose. And that's what our text gets at. Our text specifically says that God doesn't need to be studied uh, or proven. He needs to be discovered. That's how we find God. In fact, we don't find God. God finds us and draws him to draws us to himself, and we discover him because he's pursuing 
us. That's what the scriptures tell us. You're not going to find God with a fine powered telescope like the Hubble Space Telescope up in the sky looking at galaxies beyond our own. You're simply going to have to open your mind, deal mostly with your heart, and the Bible ensures us that if we would do that, that we would be able to see God. And that's what Paul says in verse 19. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so what Paul is saying is, is, is this. God is like the big E on the eye chart. Ever go to the eye doctor or even your regular doctor and they're just checking your eyes out? The, the big E is discernible to most of us. Okay, And so if you want to see the big E, all you got to do is just look out. And for the most part, most of us are going to see it. We can see God if we have eyes to see. But the problem with discovering God is not empirical evidence. The problem with discovering God resides in our hearts. We have a heart problem. It's really more than just our heart. It's our sin that keeps us from seeing God, specifically what we do with um, what we do with this area is it's what we do with the creation that God has made. Uh, and this is what we do. We take good things like our jobs, our work, our career, our families, our home, our money. We take those things and we elevate them to the point where we worship them. They become, uh, they become uh, defining points for our, who we are, our identity. They become uh, defining points for our significance. We, we gain our significance from those things to the neglect of our worship and our adoration of God. This is what Paul is saying. We focus on that kinds of stuff, created stuff, instead of the one true God. And when we do that, we have misaligned our worship, but more importantly, we actually miss God. We, we miss him, trying to see him, but we don't. Or we're not trying to see him at all, and we miss him. We miss him by saying he doesn't exist. That would be the, uh, the atheist intellectual route. They don't want to see him, and so they just don't see God. Or we might live as practical atheists where we say we believe in God, but we live as if he doesn't exist. And so Paul says, uh, particularly in the text we're looking here, this is our issue. Our issue is sin. Sin puts blinders on our eyes, it stops up our ears, and it prevents our hearts from um, discerning that there is a God in the world that exists that's really calling us to himself. And what that does, it distracts us not only from God, but it sort of um, makes us lean on other gods. This is what he gets at in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Um, Romans is an important book of the Bible for us because of the amount of theology that Paul is giving us. This particular text, 18 through really the end of the chapter, is seminal in what the Bible forms as the theology of, of, of man, of, of who we are as people. And 
it's not a good picture. I don't know if you're picking up on that. It's saying that there's something wrong with us. We're depraved. Our worship is askew. And so Paul is specifically talking about the way that pagans, people who uh, worship other things except for the one true God, will take um, creation, the luminaries in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, but also they'll worship uh, trees or, or animals and make those things their God. He's saying, principally what he's saying is he's pointing out that we look around at the creation that's been made and we marvel at it. Like our, our jaws are dropping. We say, oh, I can't believe how grand this looks. And we exchange our right worship for God and we worship those things. And again, we're missing God. So what Christian theology says is there is a personal God and he made the world. And if we would honor God for who he is, he will get the glory and we'll get the joy that we are desiring. God gets the glory he deserves. We get the joy out of life that we desire. That's Christian theology. These verses teach us that intuitively we know that there's a God that exists, but we resist him. We suppress him. We talked about that last week, verse 18 in particular. We suppress that truth. And that sets in motion the darkening of our hearts, the blinding of our eyes, the closing of our ears. And then what Paul says here is amazing. He says, even though all that's happening, we're suppressing God. God is constantly revealing himself to us. Verse 20, back up one verse. For his invisible attributes, namely he, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There's an interesting phrase in verse 20. Um, uh, it's, it's this phrase, God has clearly been perceived. He's talking about the character of God. In the, in the Greek, that phrase is uh, a present passive participle. I'm not telling you that because you need to you know grammar. I'm not telling you that because to, to, to boast up my understanding of Greek, but this actually does mean something. So the, the words on the page and how they're presented to us mean something, um, just like our English language. And what it means is the reality of God's nature, but also our obligation to him are, are continually before us. In a myriad of ways, there's evidences of God that are before us. And God is showing us his character, but more than that, we have an obligation to respond. That's what Paul is saying. And so Christian theology teaches God has given us clues, not necessarily proofs. We can't prove that there's a God, but he's given us evidence in our world, clues that he exists. And so for the rest of my sermon, we're going to look at several clues, four of them, in fact. And the first clue is called the anthropic principle. Again, uh, Keller uh, unpacks much of this with great detail in his book. So I'm taking this structure from, from Keller's book. The anthropic principle uh, basically says the world, when we look at it, seems like it was perfectly designed for human occupation. And in fact, if you go back to Genesis and look at how God ordered the world and how he made the creation that was made in the successive days, he was preparing it for habitation by people like us. And so this idea of the anthropic principle is seen when you look at the earth. The earth's axis is tipped over towards the sun about 23.5 degrees. 
if you move it just a wee, wee little bit, guess what would happen? Towards the sun, we burn up. If you move it just a wee, wee little bit, tilt it in the opposite way, guess what? We would freeze to death. Y'all want to freeze to death? Leave the earth where it is, right? Um, oxygen. Any of y'all pro-oxygen people? <laughs> All right, so I need oxygen right now because it's hot. So I'm told, scientists tell us, if the ratio of carbon to oxygen were any different than it is, none of us would be able to breathe. Thank God for oxygen. How about the stars? Scientists tell us if the average distance between the stars were greater, planets like the Earth would, have, would never have been formed. If they were smaller, planetary orbits necessary for life would not have occurred. Who knew the stars had an importance beyond just being up in the sky so we could see them? God put those luminaries in the sky for a purpose. And part of that purpose is so that we can just live on this planet that he created. Scientist Francis Collins uh, goes on to say this. This is also in his book. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it were coming from, uh, looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the, uh, the strong and weak nuclear forces, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, no stars, no planets, or people. Tim Keller follows up and says, he calls this the cosmic welcome mat. He's like, the universe is fine-tuned for our, uh, for our occupation. This is a clue for God. And the clue is, it points to the external creation and seems to indicate it was designed perfectly for us, for human habitation. This is a clue for God. All right, so that's, that's for you, all of you that are scientifically oriented. This next clue is for those of you that are artists. Any artists in the room? I don't get into all the science stuff, but I, do, I love this part. This next clue is the transcendence of beauty. This clue doesn't point ex, uh, externally. It points internally, and it, it, it attracts our, our attention to all those things in our world that, that just make us just at, at awe at at the world that we live in and how it presents itself. It's how you feel whenever um, you see these things, when you see beauty in front of you. Um, what, it, what it does to your emotional chemistry as you're experiencing it. And there's a couple things that I can think of when I, when I, uh, when I think of beauty, transcendent beauty. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina, and we have mountains in North Carolina, but I can remember the first time that Larissa and I uh, went to Colorado. We were visiting one of my West Point classmates and lives in Colorado Springs. And, you know, the, Colorado is a beautiful state. And so, so for y'all people in Texas, mountains are, are these, these huge, like, rock, ground sort of, you know, it's like stuff that juts out of the air way up high. So high you'd, like, be exhausted if you had to to travel them. I'm saying that for my Texas friends here who've, who've had nothing but flat ground. You Arizona people too. That's what Texas is. Y'all know that. So I can remember the first time we saw these mountains in Colorado, and those are like real mountains. At the bottom, it could be like 70 degrees. You get to the top, and you're like freezing. Um, and you can't think, but I mean, this is just 
majestic like landscape. It's absolutely beautiful, breathtaking. Will take your um, take your mind to 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 if you don't even know God to to glorify glorify Him based upon what you see. Um, I can think of. Uh, the first time I've been through a, going through a grand cathedral or like a worship facility, you ever wonder why we come to church and we, we're like, whisper when you get into a church? It's because it's, it's probably because you've been taught that. But more importantly, I think it comes from uh, those cathedrals that might be um, uh, very ornate. Uh, I was in Philadelphia this week with a, a pastoral cohort and we got to see 10th Presbyterian Church. And this church is 20, uh, 200 years old, um, and it's like right downtown Philly, and just the, the vaulted ceilings and tile on the, I mean, tile everywhere, these, uh, a marble pulpit, and, you know, uh, uh, plaques lining up over 200 years of pastors, and you just look at that, and you're like, this is just incredible, incredible that the, the, the facility looks like that after all those years, but you just, uh, you're in awe of of how it was designed and, and of course, how it's used for. Um, I think that's why we whisper. I, I think, I, I don't want to glamour this. Think about the human body. You know, sometimes we look at people and see beauty in them and it's lust in us. But for the most part, uh, God gave us the way we look because he's, he's ascribing beauty to us. More than just beauty in us, it's the image of God coming out of us. But here's one of the things that I think really... Uh, conveys transcendent beauty. It's music. Why don't you take a listen to this? <laughs> All right, so that's Beethoven. It's his uh, fifth symphony. I actually asked my son, Jonathan, the, the guy that was playing the violin up here. He, uh, people call this um, one of the greatest symphonies of, of all time. Obviously, Beethoven was one of the greatest composers of all time. My son, Jonathan, says actually his ninth symphony might be the greatest, at least the greatest for him. So thank you, Jonathan, for giving this to me. Um, Leonard Bernstein said of, of Beethoven, he said, uh, Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. That's an interesting word that he would use. He's calling his music rightness, as is. There's nothing wrong with it. 
when you get the feeling that when, uh, whatever note succeeds the last is the only possible note that can rightly happen at that instance in that context, then the chances are you're listening to Beethoven. He goes on to say, our boy has the real goods, the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel at the finish something is right in the world. There's something that checks throughout, that follows its own law consistently, something we can trust that will never let us down. That's Leonard Bernstein, the late Leonard Bernstein, writing that. And I think what he's trying to describe is, is just beauty. I think probably the best way to listen to classical music, as I've learned from my son, is just to close your eyes and to, and to feel it, to let it go through your body. I think that's what we were meant to do when we're listening to stuff like this, or even just the, the, the way our own worship band was playing this morning. And I think really whether it's non-human creation, uh, just looking at mountains and oceans or canyons or human creations like, like a, a cathedral or going to an art gallery or listening to music, um, what all this does, it, it transcends nature. It transcends what we know of as nature, and it takes us to, I think, uh, a, a view of the supernatural. That's what this stuff is supposed to do with us. So my wife and I are celebrating our 22nd anniversary yesterday, this weekend. So I, I have no idea why we like put the church's anniversary so close to our own anniversary. So, so check it out. Next year, y'all won't even see us. We're going like, to wave to you during the transit anniversary. But you can't help but reflect a little bit. So during our, um, our honeymoon, we took a cruise, and we went to Key West Cozumel, Cancun. Beautiful beautiful, especially Cozumel and Cancun. I remember um, getting on this party boat with all these other young people because we were sort of young. And uh, we went to this remote island from our ship and just the, the, the texture of the sand, the clearness of the water, you could see right through it, um, the brightness of the sun shining down on us. Yes, people of color can get a suntan. <laughs> I mean, we couldn't even touch each other because we got we like all sunburned on our honeymoon. Um, but it was just, it was beautiful. We were in awe of it. It reminded us of the transcendent beauty of, of God's creation. We were snorkeling and, uh, this, I mean, snorkeling and uh, we almost got like shot to death. A stingray like floats underneath us. And I'm not saying that's transcendent beauty. I don't know what God was thinking when he created the stingray, <laughs> but think about just the, the creativity of God when you are exposed to stuff like that. You become aware of the beauty around you, and I think that's a clue for God. The third clue is moral obligation. Uh, this one is the most complex. I think it's the strongest clue that, there, that we have for God. We have something brew, brewing in our culture called pluralism um, that's been going on for about 100 years or so. And what we see is just uh, as the world becomes more globalized, we are more and more aware of the cultures of the world through internet and TV and right in front of us. We're slowly becoming uh, like a multicultural uh, in environment, not because we go somewhere and we're exposed to that stuff, because that stuff is coming to us. But one of the effects of that is relativism, the philosophy of relativism. Relativism essentially says all truth is personal and not universal. And what that means specifically is you have your truth, I've got my truth. And then we would take that to the second order effect and say, because truth is personal, not objective, I shouldn't push my views on you, and you surely shouldn't push your views 
on me. And I think that's become common in our, in our culture. So common that you might say that um, you aren't pushing what you believe, what you think it to be true on other people, but you probably are in more ways than you realize it. And here's the problem with relativism. No one is a consistent relativist. There are things by which we are believing to be true, and we might say that we're letting other people go about their own truth without us posing our, imposing our truths on them, but all of us have ways and means that we believe stuff, and we believe it to the core of our being. We believe it so much that we think that all people for all time should follow what we believe, uh, and even if we say we aren't imposing those on other people, uh, for the most part we are. In other words, we, are, we all have a standard that we demand others adopt regarding, uh, uh, regardless of that person's individual convictions. There's a story of a cultural anthropologist who was doing work in Africa, and her work was to try and find uh, unknown people groups right there in Africa, those that were uh, far away and you know, kind of uh, on the outskirts of civilization. And as this particular renowned uh, anthropologist discovered these new groups, uh, her value was to not disturb the culture, to learn as much as she could about the culture without imposing her Western values on them. And, and this particular anthropologist was reacting to the way Christian missionaries would come into uh, a new tribe or, or land and immediately try to Westernize those people uh, as they were trying to impose Christianity uh, on them. She was also reacting to her own tribe, anthropologists that would come to uh, different places and try again to westernize a, uh, uh, a non-Western culture into what our ways of living and thinking. So that was her underlying philosophy. So she comes to this remote tribe in Africa, and after being with them, among them, exposed to them for a while, she learned this one practice in this one tribe. You've heard of this because it's been on uh, National Geographic. You've seen it in magazines probably. Uh, this particular tribe had a hundred-year practice uh, of, uh, of the female uh, population of the group um, having, um, I, I want to be very careful how I say this, genital manipulation. You can read into what I'm saying, right? Uh, the, the, the value was the men thought women were only good for making babies and for sexually fulfilling them. And so they mutilated their, their uh, parts of their genital organs. So obviously this Western woman, anthropologist, had an issue with that, firstly because she's a woman, and secondly because she has Western values. That just, that's just wrong. So what do you think she does? I mean, what does she do? Her value is don't disturb the culture, but she sees something that, that's in violation of her own value. Do you think she imposes herself? What do you think? Absolutely. She, she, um, she talked to them about it as best she could, and she told them, hey, women shouldn't be treated like this. What you're doing is wrong. She violated one value to uphold another. That's just one example of many I could give you, but here's the point. We do that all the time. We all do that in, in seeming and unseeming ways. It may seem very tolerant and inclusive to say all morals are valid. Your truth is yours, mine is mine, but, but most of us don't live that way consistently. There are things that we all say, you ought not do this. Think of abortion. Historically, we look back at the transatlantic slave trade, we look to Nazi Germany, and we condemn those errors as evil, right? And this leads to the, the, fourth, uh, the, the fourth clue, human rights. There's something in all of us that values 
human rights. There's something in us that says um, people should uh, not be treated unfairly, that those who are stronger should not overcome those who are weak. And we have to ask, where do we get that value from? I mean, where in the world does that come from? How is that in us? Where do human rights even come from? Uh, Keller writes in this book, there's studies being done by evolutionary psychology about how it may account for human rights. And he says, I don't know a lot. Uh, he says, uh, you can't draw a straight line from natural selection to human rights. I think that's right. Think about natural selection, theory of evolution, survival of the fittest. The stronger is going to overcome the weak and the stronger is going to evolve and survive. But then we have this culture, for the most part, that in the majority, we, we value human rights. How do you get from the theory of, of evolution, survival of the fittest, to valuing human rights? There has to be something in us that's pulling us toward that, and it's not, and it's not um, natural selection. Keller observes that all of nature is based on violence. You ever notice how animals in the wild act around each other? What are they trying to do? They're trying to survive. The stronger, more adaptive species survive, he says. Yet, humanity inescapably believes it's wrong for stronger human individuals or groups to kill or oppress weaker ones. If violence is totally natural, why would it be wrong for stronger humans to trample weaker ones? There's no basis for moral obligation unless we argue that nature is in some part unnatural. We can't know that nature is broken in some way unless there's some supernatural standard of normalcy apart from nature in which we can judge right and wrong. And here's what he concludes. I don't think we get human rights from natural selection. I also don't think you get human rights from atheism. If there isn't a God that we can't, uh, if there is no God that we can't call one act, if there's, I'm sorry, if there's no God, we can't call one, one act moral and another immoral. We can't call one act true and one wrong. All we can say is, I personally choose that, and you may personally choose that. There's no grand poobah that says this is the way that life, human values, or morals are supposed to go. Uh, many of us will argue that moral values come from society, but listen to this. Uh, eventually, good things just went out. Is that the truth? Is that what we've experienced in the history of, of even our country? Let me ask you this historically. How moral was the moral majority in Nazi Germany in the 1940s? From where we stand now looking back, that wasn't very moral at all. How moral was the majority in our country in the 50s? And the question there is um, the, the majority culture, uh, white America that allowed segregation, uh, blacks and people of color to sit in the backs of, of buses, forced them to, that, that allowed the separate entrances to restaurants that, that forced the separate drinking from water fountains. How, how moral was that majority? How moral was the South Africa apartheid in the, in the 1980s? How moral was the majority in the Balkans crisis in the 1990s? How moral was it in the Darfur genocide in Sudan in 2003? I mean, all over and over, all these different um, instances of what we would call where we live now evil promulgated by a majority people. So where do we, where do we get our morals from? 
The fact is, if there is no God, all of our moral statements are arbitrary. Our value of human rights is no. All of our values are subjective and internal, and there can be no external standard by which we use to evaluate a person's thoughts, feelings, or actions. And that's where scripture is helpful to us. The scripture says that human beings weren't, I mean, we're not just uh, atoms that crashed together and, and came to be. Scripture tells us there was a creator. Human beings didn't create human rights or the conscience that calls out for what is wrong. We didn't create it. We discover it because God put it there. And that's where Romans 20 again comes in, into play. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so I started this sermon today, really the, the whole series, with this idea, God is unprovable. And that, that's untrue. I mean, that, that's, that's true, rather. We can't prove that there is a God. But that doesn't mean that there aren't evidences in the world that we live in that says that very much so um, God exists. I know a lot of well-intending people, atheists, agnostics, who would say, I'm trying to find the God that you say exists, but I just can't prove that he exists. I'm looking at science, I'm reading stuff, and I need proof. But they can't prove it, and so they don't come to God. They, they refuse to want to know him because they can't prove that he exists. I would say that my experience is most people um, struggling to believe in God are struggling because they can't prove him, but the truth is most people who struggle to believe in God are not honest skeptics. They're looking, they're like the philosopher and atheist Thomas Nagel who says, it isn't that I don't believe in God, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want the universe to be like that. There are some people that want to believe in God, but there's something in them that they're trying to hold on to their concept of, of their personal God. That's what he's saying. They're saying there's a creator that, that if, I, if I believe in a God, then there's going to be a creator that's not me. I'm not going to be able to control that creator. A universe that says there are controls and someone who can demand me as a person, and I'll have to comply with that. That person doesn't want a universe like that. And I think many of us are the same. C.S. Lewis, obviously apologist, great writer, says there are three reasons why some people don't become Christians. The first is content. They simply don't have enough information. They don't know the details. They don't know the narrative arc of the scripture. They don't know the gospel. The second would be coherence. They got some details, but they can't put it all together. C.S. Lewis says that you can have the first and the second. You can have content and coherence, but many people stop at the third. And this is a big one, cost. Some people look at the cost of what it would be to become a Christian, and they're not willing to, 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 to have that cost over against themselves. To acknowledge that God is and that he's revealed himself specifically in the person of Jesus means that you lose control of your life, and that's a big cost. That's most costly. But what we say as Christians is that the understanding of the scriptures is that God I mean, he created the world. And I think that makes the most sense. And it helps us deal with the reality of our world. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, I believe in God as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but, but by it, 
I see everything else. I would tell you, I'm a Christian today because God pursued me. I'm looking back at my Christian life and see God actively pursued me when I wasn't at all looking for him. But I, also, I would also tell you that if I think it through, I just think rationality takes me there. The, the, the Christianity that I have come to know experientially, as I think about the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, revealing God to me and how he's changed my life without me even knowing it. But more importantly, what's revealed in the Bible, these words that are inspired that also change me and incline me to God, uh, those things help me to see rationally who God is. And so the Christian story says there was a creation. There was a personal God who created the world that we live in, not because he had to, because he wanted to. He created it uh, intentionally. He created it in wisdom. He created it with purpose. And he um, fashioned this world for the pinnacle of his creation for people like you and I. So the prize of, of, of God's creation, human beings at some point decides that they're going to do what God said not to do. Basically, it's us saying, uh, you know, God, uh, I like the world that you've created. I like the way that you've made me, but I'm going to be my own God, do my own thing and go my own way. And what that ushers in is not just creation, but the fall. And the fall has ramifications for all of us in that um, everything in the world is, is not as God intended it. And just like there's a personal God, there's a personal Satan who, um, who, who comes in the form of a snake and uh, makes havoc of the world. And like he tempted our first parents, he tempts us to do things that God would have us not to do. And all the chaos and hell that we see in our world ensued from that one event. Creation, fall, but God has a plan, and God's plan is called a plan of redemption. Redemption simply is God's means of making all that's wrong with the world right, and he does that by sending his son Jesus into the world to live a life that we're supposed to live but can't, to die on a cross in our place for our sin, and he redeems us by giving us his spirit, which really transforms us from the inside out. But here's, here's the craziness of God's plan. His real plan is for an entity called the church. That's why you're here. It's through the church that God would make known to all the principalities that caused humanity to turn in the first place, but also those who are on the earth right now of who God is and that, they would, that we would... Uh, not just sit in seats and come, uh, you know, come to gather on Sunday morning, sing sweet songs, you know, like, like the sweet by and by. Like, like sometimes we think church is all that, but that we would be in the here and now, and God would use people like us, call the church to influence the community around us, that we would be at the gates of hell pushing back darkness. That's God's plan, and as crazy as it sounds, that's how he's going to bring, bring redemption to his world. And so God uses the church to bring restoration physically, materially to his world as a sign of his kingdom. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's God's plan. 
That's the Christian story. And if you don't know that story, you, you don't know God. But that's also what this Bible portrays, Genesis through Revelation. It's the story of the Bible. That makes sense to me, and it makes sense in the world that we live in. And I, I would say that's why we're here. Why does this church, transit church, exist? Because God has called the church to be a part of his story of redemption. God has called his church to be the restoration agent in his world to push back darkness and evil and bring forth the glory of God to those who don't know him. That's the very reason why we're here. You're not an accidental uh, container of atoms. I said that before. You were made with intention and purpose. You were made to know and love the God that knows and loves you. How good is that? Doesn't that, I mean, doesn't that just resonate with you? That you were made to know and love the God that knows and loves you. And if you sit here today and you don't know and love God, he still knows and love you, loves you. And perhaps the reason why you're here is because he's trying to make yourself known, make himself known to you. Like he did to me 20-something years ago, pursuing you when you're not even pursuing him. God continually reveals himself. He reveals his character. And while that's ever before us, there is an obligation that we would be reminded of him. I would tell you, whether you're a doubter, a skeptic, or a Christian that knows God intimately, um, God, God is there. He, he's evident before us, and he wants you to see him. He wants you to meet him, to know he's there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you're a God that reveals yourself, that there, we might not be able to prove you, but there's evidences that you exist in our world. There's clues to you. Thank you for uh, the beauty that we see in the world. Thank you for the, 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 the galaxies and the universe, this world that you've made, for the intricate design of this world, for the intricate design of our bodies even. Thank you for humanity and all of creation. Thank you for the morality that you've put in us that inclines us to, uh, to human rights and all that's right in the world. I thank you for your church that you've designed to break open the gates of hell and to push back evil so that your glory would shine. God, would you use us individually and corporately to make you known? God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that not only indwells us, but uh, that, that uses us as lights in dark places. I thank you for Transit Church, this four-year-old church that you started from nothing but an idea. And uh, thank you for the years that you've given her. Thank you for the years to come. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.